Our scripture reading today is 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have not taken advantage of anyone. Do not say this to con- we do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies held no rest, but we were afflicted on every turn, fighting within, fear with. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. Fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he was told of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my heart, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see that earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnest to clear yourselves with what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you proved yourselves innocent in this manner. So, although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more in the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus was proven true. And his, affliction, and his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Um, so there's a lot of things here that we've actually already talked about. Um, I've, I've referenced several of them. Paul talks a lot about his sufferings, his struggles. Um, <clears throat> we talked about Titus. Albeit it was a long time ago, but podcasts are online. Huh? Um, and, and so the main thing I wanted to focus on in this chapter, it, it's something he keeps coming back to over and over and over and over and over again, is this idea of, of rebuking. Um, a lot of the emotion in this passage has to do with the fact that, that Paul didn't like making his people feel bad and writing them these really, really harsh letters. Um, and so this whole thing is a, a sort of journaling of, It was hard to do, but it worked out really good, and so I'm sorry I did it, but I'm not sorry I did it. You know, it's it's sort of like when your parents, you know, bend you over their knee when you're a kid and say, this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. All right? Um, That's sort of the idea. Um, And so today we're going to talk about this, and this whole passage is about the importance of rebuking sin in the church. Um, Now, if you will remember, 
Um, near, our very, near the very beginning, maybe about three months into our first study of 1 Corinthians, um, we, we read a passage that talked a lot about, how, uh, talked a lot about Paul's view of, of holy living and confronting your brother. And, and the whole idea is this is supposed to happen in the church. And he, and he specifically says, I don't really worry about what's happening outside the church. Um, people who claim to be Christians, people who are followers of Jesus, who claim to live under this, um, the, the biblical uh, ethic, if you will, these are the people that we go around confronting. The other people we show kindness to, and we show love and mercy and grace to, and, and we plead with them to, to hear Jesus. And, uh, so before I even get into this passage, I, I want to I uh, remind you, the idea behind um, a, a biblical ethic of, of confronting sin is we confront sin within the body of believers um, with an intent to make each other um, more holy, to, to bring each other um, a, a clearer vision of how we are supposed to live. Um, but Paul is, is very clear. It, it, we, what we are not supposed to be doing is going out and trying to get everyone in the world to live like we do. Live like uh, very, very moral people. Because the problem with that is um, it's a very easy way to avoid Jesus a very easy way to do that is to live a perfect life. Perfect life, if you will. Um, oftentimes, uh, it, it's, it, we can go around getting everyone to, um, we can pass all these laws, getting everyone to live their lives perfectly in tune with the Bible, but the problem is those people still don't know Jesus. And so in the end, we have, we have accomplished nothing except create a nation of, of, of really arrogant, prideful, moral people, not a nation of the kingdom of God. Um, and, and so when we confront sin, when we talk about this today, the idea is this is something that happens in the church. Um, by, by becoming um, followers of Christ, we join ourselves to the global church, and, and um, we open ourselves up to um, our brothers and sisters coming to us and talking to us about sin that's in our life. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing that very much levels the playing field. It should be happening constantly. We should be openly confessing our sins. We should be um, being honest about who we are and, and calling other people to be honest. Um, so with all that said, we're going to dive into this passage here. Um, he starts off by saying, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves, uh, in, in verse 1 here, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement um, of body and spirit, bring, uh, bringing holiness to completion. Uh, in, in the fear of God. And the whole idea here is bringing holiness to completion. This is the sanctification part. It's becoming what you have been declared to be, which is holy, all right? Um, and this is the work of the Spirit inside of us. So this chapter starts off in verse 1 with this call to repentance, um, to repent of all of the sins that, that they were dealing with in this church. Now, because of the nature of this book, we don't necessarily know what exactly he's talking about here. He, he could be talking about um, any number of things. There's all kinds of sins that he confronted them on throughout all of 1 Corinthians and part of 2 Corinthians. We know at one point uh, in 2 Corinthians, a harsh letter is mentioned. We don't know which letter that is. We don't know if that letter has been lost um, by the ancient scribes or if that letter is actually built into 2 Corinthians. Um, it's entirely possible. And so what, what we have here is um, a lack of information about which subject he confronted them on to, talk, to make him write this. But we do know that there was sin that was confronted, and that's really what we need to know. Um, so, I mean, either way, Paul is participating in a very ancient Jewish tradition, the confrontation of a brother or sister who is in sin. Um, so, if you'll remember, we talked about last week, Paul does a, does a really quick reference of Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, you have those random verses. Um, Leviticus 19 is, is referred to um, by the Jews as the holiness code. It, it's how they, it, it, they, they read this, and it, it teaches them how to live a holy life. 
uh, you know, each segment of, of the, the Tanakh has, has little, um, you know, little titles. And so um, this is the section they focus on when they want to study the Holiness Code, um, Leviticus 19. And so in this passage you have, in this chapter, you have the, the ideas of don't plant two types of seed in your garden. Um, don't interbreed your cows. Don't, um, don't yoke two of them together to plow a field. Um, don't put two types of, of threads in your garments. These kind of things. The things that seem very, very random to, to modern people. Um, and we talked a little bit last week about how it was really the heart of the law. It, it, that these things are proclaiming something about God and man. They're not just random laws. Um, it's pretty much proclaiming that what God created was good, and, and we don't need to improve upon it, that we need to embrace what he has given us, that we need to um, not strive for more and more and more and more, um, and not try to sort of edit creation. And it's not that editing creation would be wrong, it's that a view that God didn't do a good enough job would be wrong. A view that we can do better than God is what is wrong with the whole thing. And so, and so Paul, you know, he, so he opens up this whole idea um, by quoting a little bit of Leviticus 19. Um, so, um, where are we here? Uh, so, you know, one of the things that, that um, okay, I'm going I'm to veer away from the subject real fast. Uh, Paul was a rabbi. One of the things that rabbis would regularly do is something that, that, um, uh, that the ancient Jewish writers would actually refer to as stringing pearls. It's an interesting way of teaching people um, how to study the scriptures, and it's, it's, it's a way of teaching people um, to actively pursue and study, study um, the text. Um, it would pretty much work like this. Uh, somebody would be talking to you, and you would mention a small portion of a giant book of the Bible, um, or any passage of scripture, and by you mentioning that in your answer, you didn't have to actually answer them. You're saying the answer is in this chapter. And when you hear something like this, you, being a good Jew, would go back to the temple and, and you, would, um, you would study that passage of Scripture and find the answer that you're looking for. It's called stringing pearls. It, it's a way of answering without answering and actually while you're answering, getting them to study some more. Uh, your answer is buried in that text, all right? Um, Jesus actually used to do this. Um, we actually see a bit of it in Matthew 21. This is all going somewhere, I promise you. Um, we see some of it in Matthew 21, uh, and Jesus is walking around, and it says, And then a blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that, that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And then leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodge there. Now, I, I point these things out a lot, times where Jesus sort of gives an answer but doesn't really give an answer, and the people are like, okay. You know? Um, so there was, there was children who were actually old enough to talk and yell and scream, and, and they're crying out, and, and lame people and blind people who were being healed, and they're all crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And the Pharisees saw this, and they were very, very upset about it, and he says, well, didn't you read the Old Testament where it says that out of the mouths of babies and nursing infants um, that, that you have prepared praise? Well, he's obviously, there's no, there was actually no nursing infants or babies saying this, because that's impossible. Um, but they, but he said this and walked away. What he's doing here is this, is this rabbinical tradition, and he was actually quoting Psalm chapter 8, verse 2. And what he's doing is, he quotes the scripture uh, that they recognized, and they're like, oh, okay, so I have to go study this now, great. And so they go back to the temple, and they read this, and this is what they read. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. He's calling them enemies of God. He's calling them the foes of God. He's insulting them sort of secretly. And they wouldn't know they were insulted until he was long gone. 
All right? Um, it's like, don't insult somebody until you walk a mile in their shoes because then you'll be a mile away and you'll have their shoes. Right? Um, so that, I mean, this is, this is something that people did. So when Paul quotes a little bit of Leviticus 19, they were sort of expected to go and, and study the rest of Leviticus 19. And lo and behold, when you read a lot of the rest of this chapter of 1 Corinthians 6, you see a lot more Leviticus 19 in this chapter. Um, are you with me? I, I hope you are. I guess it doesn't matter. I'm going to keep going. Um, so Paul's quoted a little bit of Levit- Leviticus 19 uh, of the holiness code. Um, and what the part that he quoted was Leviticus 19.19. 19. If you were to open up and study Leviticus 19, um, and you start at the beginning and read down, two verses before you get to the part that Paul just quoted, you're going to see this verse. Leviticus 19.17-18. Uh, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly. I underlined that because we're coming back to it. With your neighbor. Lest you incur sin because of him, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the, against the sons of your own people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Um, there, there, um, this is a, an interesting little passage here because this is actually the very first time in all of scriptures where we are commanded to confront our brothers and sisters who are in the family of God who are living in sin. Um, and, and the word reason, frankly, there that I've underlined, in ancient Hebrew, it looks like this. Um, it's pronounced okay, and okay? Um, and it's okay, and it means to rebuke, to reproach, to chasten. So when you actually read um, sort of a modern translation, but you shall reason frankly, it, it, you shall rebuke, you shall reproach, you shall chasten um, people who are living in sin, uh, who are your brothers and sisters. So yeah, it's pronounced okay. Um, and, and this, the idea is that this is where the Jews actually first learned about how to rebuke and comfort, uh, how to rebuke people and, and confront them in their sins. Um, and it was actually considered a sin, according to this passage, it's, co- it's considered a sin not to rebuke someone uh, when they were living in habitual sin. Um, Leviticus introduces this law with sort of a, a, a double command for emphasis. If you were to read this in Hebrew, it says, hokea, tokea. It, it, it rhymes. It's sort of a, a general command. You're supposed to sort of take it as a motto. Hokea, tokea. Like, if you don't do this, uh, you, shall, you shall surely rebuke um, your brother who is in sin. Um, uh, and so, so, yeah, you shall surely rebuke your fellow and not bear sin on his account. Uh, the idea here is that by not, by, by having someone who you love, they are part of the body of Christ, and they are walking off and doing their own thing outside of the will of God, maybe um, following their own personal idols, by not calling them back, by not going to them and talking to them, um, you are actually joining them in their sin, and, and you are guilty alongside of them because it leads to their uh, destruction, and, the, and basically you took part in their destruction. Um, so, uh, also this command, it talks about the heart uh, with which they are to do it, out of love, like a family member, um, as if they were you. Look at, look at the last part of the verse. Uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, um, knowing that your, you know, you don't want your own body to be, de- to be um, destroyed. Well, guess what? They are attached to your body and heart um, by, by God, because they are your brother and sister. And, and actually, Paul, Paul says this. He says, he, says, he says our hearts are together, and we're going to get into this and talk about that. So um, I would argue, from everything I read in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I would argue that when Paul wrote this part of this letter to them, he was most likely studying Leviticus 19. And I love thoughts like this. 
because it, it's, it's a reminder that, the, that these, these people were just like us. When, when they studied the scriptures, they gathered inspiration from them, and, and it helped them to, to flesh out all the things that they needed to say. He's jumping from subject to subject, and on all of these subjects are covered right there in this ancient Levitical text, all right? Um, and so it's from this passage that we get all our other passages on actually on confronting sin. If you've ever read Matthew 18, don't worry, I'm not going to do the whole thing here. Um, it's, uh, this is Jesus telling the people how to confront sin. He says, uh, someone's in sin, you're going to go talk to them. If they don't listen, you're going to take someone else, and you're going to take, uh, you know, two or three, you're going to take, you're going to bring them to the church elders. And, and this is where, where, this is regularly quoted today um, as the passage that lays out how to exercise church discipline. Um, interestingly, Paul actually sort of says the same thing uh, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians when he tells them, you have somebody in your church who is actually um, live, having an adulterous affair with their stepmother. In 1 Corinthians, he says this. It's in your church. It's going on. You have to deal with this now. And he gives them the same steps that Jesus gives. Now, the interesting thing is, we use this passage to, to talk about church discipline today in this church, in the New Testament church, the interesting thing you may not actually have ever thought about is that this is Jewish. There was no church when this was written. Jesus was not a Christian. We weren't called Christians until long after this, about Antioch when we were being mocked and made fun of and they started calling us Christians as insults. Um, Jesus was Jewish. And, and this right here is the Jewish way that leads all the way back to Leviticus 19. Um, so this is an important, important thing in the Jewish life. This is an ancient Jewish tradition confronting your brother and saying how to do it, the heart with which to do it. Um, and it's a big deal. So now um, Paul addresses his own responsibility that he has to confront the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 7. And, and he sort of does it, like I said, like a parent would say, I, I don't like doing this, but I have to, and here's why. Um, there are times when rebuke is necessary. We're going to get to the passage, don't worry. There are times when rebuke is necessary. Um, for a lot of people, rebuke is actually less necessary than they think it is. They're, they're very gung-ho about rebuking everyone. And for other people, rebuke is much more important than they think it is. Um, there is this mindset we are to have about this. Um, and for those of you who are in the house churches reading C.S. Lewis' Problem of Pain, I've got a little piece for you here from chapter 3, I believe. It goes like this. Love in its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloved. Um, that the mere kindness which tolerates anything except suffering is, in that respect, at the opposite pole from love. When we fall in love with a woman, do we cease to care whether she is clean or dirty, fa- fair or foul? Um, or do we not rather than first begin to care? Does any woman regard it as a sign of love? in a man that he neither knows nor cares how she is looking? Love may indeed love the beloved when her beauty is lost, but not because it is lost. It is not a loving thing to let someone walk away from the Lord into their life of sin. It's not a way of being tolerant. It is not a way of, of avoiding conflict. All it does is, is bring about more pain than you ever imagined it would bring about. Someone who loves someone else will and must care how holy they are. To be, different, to be indifferent to someone's wrongdoings makes you guilty of endangering and neglecting them. Um, also, when we confront and correct each other as Christians, when we speak truth into each other's lives, we're also revealing things to them that they might need to know. Have you ever noticed in Proverbs chapter 9, it says this, 
sort of a paradox. Whoever corrects a scoffer um, gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instructions to a wise man and he will be wiser, still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in his learning. So um, the idea here is it's not telling you who to confront. It's actually talking to the people who are being confronted in this brilliant little way. Uh, when you are being confronted, if you read this verse, depending on how you reacted, it tells you which one of these two you are. And if you confront some, if you are, I, and the question here is, is when the, the last time someone came to you and said, why are you doing this? Why? How did you react? Did you react like the scoffer or the wicked man? Or did you react out of love and realize the love that that person has for you by coming to you? Um, how did you respond? How did you react? Were you furious with them? Did you use words like, how dare you? The, the, the phrase, how dare you, if you actually think about that phrase, uh, what it means, it's an accusatory term. It, 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 it's, it's meant to let the other person know that they are below you, that they're not quite on your level, that they would dare confront you. Um, it's typically an oppressive term. Or were you thankful that they loved you enough to do a very, very difficult thing. It's not easy to come to someone and talk to them about their sin. We all avoid it as much as we possibly can until the time comes to do it. And so we get into the passage that we're talking about today. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Um, this is the idea of, of doing to others what what you would have them do. It, it's what Leviticus 19 sort of said. Our hearts are connected. I, I, I don't, I'm not here to condemn you. I'm not here to call you out and, 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 and deliver you some punishment. I'm here to let you know that I love you and I care, and what you are doing is very, very dangerous. He makes it clear that his intention in confronting their sin is not to condemn them. He doesn't want to make them feel as though they need to be punished. He doesn't want to make them feel ashamed. He's not trying to pour guilt on top of them. He's not trying to oppress them in any way or to make them feel like they are in debt to him. And we can see this because of the way he talks to them uh, in verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. It was very difficult for him to understand and to hear that they didn't take his conf confrontation very well. It grieved him for several reasons. One, because he maybe was afraid of losing friends. Two, because he realized that according to Proverbs, they were still wicked people that didn't respond right. Um, it's something that's incredibly important to see here. It's always, you know, it's, it's always dangerous to, for, for a, a, a pastor or a teacher to, to, to teach on a subject of, of confronting sin in the church um, because people have a tendency to, to practice the things that you teach. And then um, you, get a bunch, you get out in the hallway and, and uh, you, have, you have several, always a couple zealous people that are just like, all right, let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> you... I know what you did. And, and they just start confronting. Now, so I, it's, it's, it's hard to actually kind of teach this because I want you to understand the importance of it, but I don't want you to just charge out today and start going to town, all right? Um, 
So my fear is you'll read a passage like this or like Matthew 18 or Proverbs 9 and you'll start walking around it and calling everyone out and then I'll get a letter saying it's time to exercise some church discipline on so-and-so. Um, so there's a mindset with which a Christian should carry himself uh, and, and, and this passage tells us certain things about Paul's whole method and outlook on rebuke. The first thing that we see is he was quite clear that there came a time when rebuke was necessary. Um, most of us seek what we would call, what I like to call, easy peace. It's just peace through letting people go through what they went through. They made their own choices. Let them suffer. They'll come out the other, under, the other end and we'll be there being like, I'm sorry you went through that. Come here. That's easy peace. Um, it's, it's very unloving is what it is. Letting the people that you love just suffer. Not being willing to enter into it with them to, to attempt to pull them out of it. It's not a good thing. It's not a good trait in any of us. Um, you're not doing them any favors. You're, you're turning them into people who will who will not be equipped to deal with, with um, the power structures of the world. Have you ever been around um, kids whose parents refuse to discipline them? Congratulations. Absolutely no one likes your kids. <laughs> um, this is what we are doing. When we refuse to confront sin in our churches, we are creating a bunch of people that nobody likes, um, that are not equipped to, to love, to show grace, or to even... Um, walk with somebody through a difficult time. And when we refuse to confront sin in each other's lives, we, we are, are denying them the thing that will help them grow. It's, it's, not a, it's not a loving thing to never punish your kids and just give them whatever they want because they will turn out to be terrible people and you will unleash them on the rest of our kids when they all grow up. All right? It's not a good thing. Um, like parents who exercise no discipline because they, are, they fear unpleasantness, in the end, they, they're piling up greater trouble for themselves. Trouble is, is like a disease. This is how William Barclay puts it. Trouble is like a disease. If it is dealt with at the right time, it can, it can often be easily eradicated, and if not, it can become an incurable growth. And, and Paul is very clear. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said it before, that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. We are connected. In other words, um, our hearts are connected, and, and, and if you die, I die. So I will do my absolute best to ensure that you live. And so the second thing that we see is that, is that Paul didn't take any pleasure in any of this. He didn't enjoy it. He didn't enjoy confronting people. He did it because he loved them, not because he loved confrontation. And there's lots and lots of people out there who take some sort of sadistic pleasure in confronting people. They claim, oh, I'm just being honest, man. Uh, I, I'm bro, right? Bro. Um, uh, and they claim that they're st- I'm just speaking the truth, or I'm just, I'm just telling you how it is. And, and in reality, they're sinful and they're prideful, and they have much deeper issues of arrogance and pride that they need to repent of themselves that somebody should probably call them out on. Um, typically... <clears throat> All right, let's talk psychology. Psychology majors? Um, so I, I, read, I read a lot of books. I did. There's a fact. Uh, I read a lot of books on, on, um, on pre-marriage counseling and, and, and uh, when I was preparing to, to become a pastor and stuff. And, and one of the things that the psychologists kept saying over and over and over and over and over again is that men and women are different. Um, and it's not just that they're different. It's that they respond different to everything. And especially... Um, I'm going to get this right here, or I'm going to get confronted by all the psychologists, and they're going to psychoanalyze me. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say it like this. Typically, um, confrontation is done by, by men. Uh, 
one of the, one of the general differences between men and women is that, is that they react differently when they are disrespected. Um, and a man who, who, who doesn't feel respected, for example, he's very apt to become self-righteous, indignant. Um, he feels even more worthy of respect when he has been disrespected um, and when others don't respect him at all. Um, and he may even give less until he actually gets what he thinks he deserves. And we've all known men like this. Um, people don't generally show him a lot of respect, and so they stand up and demand that you respect them, and they will oppress you until you do. And it never actually happens. Um, they never actually respect you. So you just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. This is, a, this is how a lot of times a man's brain will work. Um, typically, um, if, if a man is respected and, and he's, talked to, he's, 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 he's talked to as if he's a respectful person, um, he will never become an overbearing jerk. Um, well, maybe there's other factors that factor into that. Um, women operate completely differently. When they're not respected, they become insecure. Um, they lose their sense of self. They kind of shrink away. They, they react totally different than men do. And, and they become self-conscious. They become withdrawn. Um, and this is why men, oftentimes, who don't feel respected and looked up to, they become harsh, confrontational, generally very, very oppressive, and they go around confronting people and calling people out. Um, we've, we've had a bunch of these kind of guys. And, and they end up trying to confront me and the elders and all kinds of stuff. And if we can't work through it, if we can't calm them down and, and talk to them about how you don't have a right view of yourself, you don't have a right view of others, and you're trying, you have an idol, the idol of self-respect, um, and you're trying to get it in other people, and, and your respect comes from God, and you don't need to respond like this. Um, but these kind of men, they go nuts, and they can destroy a church in no time flat through being confrontational. It's a simple fact that when someone is rebuked, when, when, when a rebuke is delivered by someone who is enjoying it, relishing in it, it's never going to be as effective as the rebuke, which is obviously given unwillingly by someone who really doesn't see any alternative. Someone who says, I ha- look, I have no other choice. I don't, I don't want to talk to you about this, but I don't have another choice because you're going a bad direction. You're going down a bad path. I need to talk to you about this. And how you respond in that moment if they have approached this rightly, how you respond in that moment will describe what kind of person you are, according to Proverbs 8. Are you a wicked person or are you someone who is wise and, and wants to hear these things? Notice Paul's proclamation to them. He says, I do, I, I do not say this to condemn you. This is the same message that Paul actually delivered to the Roman church in, in Romans chapter chapter 8. He says this in chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for you. If you are part of the church, part of the kingdom of God, part of, uh, of the family of God, there is no condemnation for you. This is something that we have to grasp, especially when our brothers and sisters are rebuking a sin in our lives. There is no condemnation. And it is because there is no condemnation that we are so able to talk to each other about serious sin issues. All right? There's, there's no condemnation. We can forgive each other. We can be reconciled to each other. There's nothing to be, um, there's nothing to be repaid. There's, there's nothing to be, that, that you need to be punished for. Jesus himself has suffered and died. He's already taken the punishment upon himself. All you need to do is, is look at that and recognize that the sin that you are being called out on has been already paid for, and this should make you all the more willing to make it right, to change yourself, to repent of it. Jesus was crucified. We don't go around crucifying each other. 
we point to Christ. All right? We're all in the same boat here. The idea here is that we are all in the same boat. You, you are no better or no worse than anyone else, and being a follower of Christ means being willing to admit your flaws. A community of confession is what I always talk about having here. We have to be people who are honest about who we are. This is not a showroom for saints. This is a hospital for sinners. We come here, and we, we are honest about who we are, and we are all in the same boat, and we can lift each other up and say, I'm just like you. You're not walking into a room looking around saying, I wish I was as good as all these people. I, I wish that I, was as, I could be as holy as them and live as good a life as them. They're going to walk up to you and be just as honest about who they are and how sometimes they have actually wished they could be like you. And, and how about we all get together and wish we were like Jesus? That's the idea. Um, so there's this, a French-speaking uh, Swiss author in the 18th century, and she made a brilliant, just tiny little, tiny little phrase that has always stuck with me. To know all is to forgive all. There's two reasons for this. One of them, to know all, kind of makes you God, and God is a very forgiving person. Um, Two, if you knew everything about someone else, then the things that they were doing, you wouldn't really hold it against them. Someone who did a a terrible atrocity, committed something vile and evil, if you were to go back and experience their life with them to to know exactly everything that they have been through, how much they love their brothers and sisters, what kind of birthday cake they ate, what kind of dog they had, where they went to school, who abused them, um, how often they were made fun of. If you knew all these things about someone and you got to the end of the, and, and you brought to where they are now, you would look at them and you would say, of course, of course you did what you did. There's no excuse for it. You, you're, you're a person living in a sinful world. But if I grew up in the exact same situation as you, I most likely would have done the same thing. And this is the thing we fail to remember. You know, it given, and I've said this before, every, the, the amount of time a, an online, like, debate happens, the higher the chances are that someone's going to be called Hitler, right? Um, it's, it's normally like five replies is the Hitler reply. Um, the truth is, if you were to go back and, and you were to experience everything that he experienced, grew up in the same household, um, were taught the same things, indoctrinated the same way, um, abused the same way he was, uh, I, I highly doubt any one of us would have made a different decision. I know we all like to say, no, no, he was really, really bad, and I'm, I'm better than him. It's kind of a dangerous thought, because then who else in this room are you better than? To know everything someone has been through is to love them. To know everything about them is to look at them and say, I wish you had never had to go through that. And to walk through that with them. I know it's hard to hear. If you look at, if you look at what Paul says next in verse, man, like, there we go. Uh, in, in verses 9 through 13, you see this wild roller coaster that, that he has been on. As, as he writes them these letters and confronts them in their sins. Um, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For if you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment 
At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And so although I, I wrote to you, I was, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed. He, he goes, he has all these different thoughts. I, I hated to write the letter, but I'm glad I wrote the letter. It was difficult to hear that you grieved, but I was joyous to hear that you were grieved into salvation. It's not easy. It shouldn't be easy. If it was easy, that probably means you have some sin in your life. Um, but the fact that you're doing it recognizes that you, you actually have some sanctification in your life because you understand the importance of it, of holy living. You know, this is, that's why we rebuke in the first place, is, is so that people can, re, so people can regain their, the joy in, in repentance. He says, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. When we do, we need someone there. When, when, we, when we stumble off into sin, we need someone there to call us back and remind us, you can come back, our arms are open, there is no condemnation, nothing is going to happen, just, just come on back. Come on back. And to call them back, and, and, and who are we ever to condemn anyone when we have been forgiven and shown so much grace? I'm going to end with <clears throat> a simple, separate thought for those of you who are here today and maybe you're carrying around some burden today. Um, I want you to ponder again Romans chapter 8, verse 1. This is a very important piece of Scripture um, for those of you who, who feel unlovable by God, who feel broken down, who feel like you have done things that are so awful that God would never accept you, who are living, you, those of you who, who might be living a life that you feel is, is it's, it's outside of God's will, and, and, and I, I cannot talk to him about it. I cannot come to him. <clears throat> there, is now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. And so think about maybe your view of your own self. How do you view yourself? Do you feel beaten down? Do you have low self-esteem? Paul wants you to remember there's no condemnation. We're not here to like, call out your flaws. Right? We're here to admit ours and to help you admit yours. How about when we dredge up our past, the things that we have done, there's no condemnation. How about when we, when we talk about ourselves, when we talk ourselves up? We do this a lot. Maybe you did it this morning with somebody here. You talked yourselves up. And Paul would look at you and say, you know, you don't need to do that. There's no condemnation here. Nobody's going to condemn you for just being normal like us. They're not going to. <clears throat> when we try to hide who we were, if we have a past that we just won't want anyone to know about, why do you insist on carrying it around? Why are you so shameful about it? Why are you feeling so burdened? Did you know that there is no condemnation? in the body of Christ. Jesus knew what you did. He saw it. He knows now. And he forgives. You are not condemned. You are welcomed. You are loved. We are a community of people, hopefully, who are honest about who we are and what we deserve and what we have received instead. And we give that to each other. And those are the thoughts that, that I gather when I, when I study this book and when I, when I realize how difficult it was for Paul to confront his people. And when he reminds them, there's no condemnation. There's really not. There's nothing, there's no reason you need to be upset when I talk to you about sin. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to help you be honest. Because it's only when we can all be honest that we can really all effectively, really, truly love each other. If you're hiding things in your life, 
that's a part of your life that will remain unloved and untouched by the love of God. Let's be honest about who we are, shall we? We can do that. It'll make us better people. It'll make us more holy people. It'll make us more in love with the gospel. So we're going to take a time of communion. Um, This is something we do every week. It's very, very important to us. It's a very sacred time where we take some bread, and the bread symbolizes the body of Christ broken for us, and we rip off a piece, and we dip it in the, in the wine. The wine symbolizes the, uh, the, the blood of Christ spilled for every one of us, and, and we take it, and we dip it, and we, and we eat it. We take it inside of us as if to say, I take the gospel inside of me, deeper and deeper inside of me. Touch the areas of my life that the gospel has yet to touch. I remember what you, Jesus, did on the cross for me. I do this in remembrance of you. And we thank God. And, and, and before you come take communion, why don't you ask God to reveal things that you need to repent of, that you need to be honest about? Maybe there's somebody that you have been, you know you've needed to talk to for a really long time and you refuse to do it because you fear confrontation. You're not doing them any favors. You're making it harder on yourself. Take care of it. Let's have a holy, clean church. Let's have a beautiful bride for God, Right? Let's decorate ourselves, make ourselves lovely for him. Get rid of these things. So we have four communion stations. We'll have someone here. We have one back there and two on the sides. Whenever you're ready, just go on up and take a piece and, and dip it and eat it. Um, if you need prayer, um, I believe we'll have elders in the back. Yes? No? I can't see anybody. Yes. Um, we'll have an elders in the back here. Um, if there's somebody you need to pray with, you need to talk to, um, please do. Um, if you're not a follower of Christ and you would like to become one today, I would invite you to take communion. Please do. And then come talk to us about it. We would love to celebrate with you and talk to you more about it. So let's pray. Father, we love you. You are good. You are holy. You are righteous. I ask that you would um, permeate our hearts right now in these things that we did not want to deal with. Let us just put them on the table and admit that they're there and deal with them this morning. Let us help each other to deal with these things. Let us be honest. Let us be open. There's no reason for us to burden ourselves by carrying these things around. Make us more like you. Thank you, God. In your name, amen.